Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Today is Thursday, July 15th, and this next hour we study the inspired and true Word of God and put on our Christ goggles in Nehemiah chapter 2. One thing I've noticed about Nehemiah is that it's not a book you normally just run to. Maybe, and I mentioned this uh, with Pastor Meyer yesterday, is that maybe you've watched the movie Facing the Giants, but a lot of people don't end up in this book, which is why it can be challenging, but also there are a lot, lots of grace, lots of law, and lots of gospel. So we have Nehemiah, the cupbearer. He's been led to rebuild the wall, and he prays to the Lord for success. And today we're able to see how the Lord answered his prayer. A great reminder to us. Our Lord hears our prayers and answers them. And what does it mean for him? What does it mean for us? The gifts are ready, ready for you. A special thanks to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information. lhfmissions.org. To help us be strengthened by God's Word, we welcome back Pastor Tim Winterstein of Faith Lutheran Church in S. Wenatchee, Washington. Pastor Winterstein, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Thanks for having me again. Pastor Winterstein, uh, what's going on for you, your family, and the the, the saints at Faith Lutheran? Uh, you know, it's it's been good. We we uh, were Washington is starting to open up a little bit more, and uh, we've I think we've we've weathered. You know, there's always something. You know, in terms of uh, uh, health or you know, issues, but, but, uh, we've, we've weathered the last year and a half and, uh, I think we've done the best we can and starting to open up a lot and people, uh, have hung in there. And, uh, so it, it looks, it looks good from a human perspective. Yeah. How about your family? How's your family? Good. Yeah. We, uh, in January we'll have three teenagers. So there's that. Um, <laughs> But and a uh, senior too, a senior in high school. A senior in high school, but uh, you know it's it's good. We're uh, everybody is doing well, so thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is great to hear. It's one of the joys of being part of Thy Strong Word is we get to hear how things are different, obviously around the country and even the world. We have some of that, um, but also it's very similar because we're all experiencing this. Okay, we've come out of our homes. Uh, some people have come back to church. Some people haven't. In Minnesota, it's really hard to tell in the summer months. And you served in Minnesota, Pastor, and so you know how that is. Summer happens, and you're like, "Where is everybody?" Um, at they're lake. at the, the lake. Yeah, not they don't tell you what lake it is, so you don't visit them. <laughs> but they have a lake somewhere, you know. Um, <laughs> so it's hard to tell here, and that's why we pray. And I encourage our listeners to pray uh, for the fall season to, you know, that the Holy Spirit would lead people back to worship, to receive the Lord's gifts, and that we're able to, well, care for souls, which is the purpose of the church and the purpose of uh, the pastoral ministry um, for the sake of the people to receive his gifts and to receive his grace as well. So that's a good prayer. And in Washington, do you have anything like that where people disappear and they go somewhere, they don't tell you where they're going? You know, not not like the Minnesota idea of going to the lake, but... Uh, <laughs> But, you know, it, I, I think it's it's much more uh, uneven throughout the year rather than, you know, certain weekends in the summer. And you never know which one, but, you know, you're going to have half the people at wherever. But, uh, you know, not not maybe not as much. And, and there aren't 10,000 lakes or 12,000 or however many there are. 
um, here. So, but beautiful state. So. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Well, Pastor, uh, back in the farm, as we say, uh, because we're here to study the Word of God and to study uh, God's Word from Nehemiah. So as we are about to search the scripture, Scriptures, Pastor, can you begin our time um, asking for the Lord's blessing in prayer? Absolutely. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your Word, for, for uh, having your prophets and apostles write down uh, the story of your salvation uh, fulfilled in Jesus and given to us that, uh, that we are actually part of this same story, uh, that the fulfillment of your word in Christ has come to us as well. We thank you for that, and we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit and open our, our, uh, our ears and our minds and our hearts to the word that you have given to us uh, for our sake and for the sake of those around us. Uh, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 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 Well, Pastor, it's uh, Nehemiah is, like I mentioned in the introduction, kind of a unique book in that people kind of know the story and they kind of know the history. I think your normal lay person would say, yeah, I remember hearing about it. They might get it mixed up with other prophets. But it's a book that we don't naturally just go to. It's not There's not a season of the year that says, okay, this is the time for Nehemiah or something. We don't have a three-year cycle of Nehemiah. And so when we look at Nehemiah chapter 2, Pastor Ben Meyer yesterday did a great job of introducing a number of different themes, but there's always good to rehash and maybe some other themes that you found. So Come to chapter two, any background, contextual, or thematic thoughts that will help us out this morning? It, it's interesting. I, is, there, is there actually a, 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 sec, a section of Nehemiah assigned in the lectionary? I, Boy. Uh, I, off the top of my point. head, I'm sure that there's got to be something. But off the top of my head, uh, I can't think of it. So it's, it's, not, it's not, as you said, it's not something that we, we often turn to. And in fact... I mean, I don't think I've ever done an actual Bible study in the churches I've served on Nehemiah. Um, so it's kind of it's kind of in the background. We know, you know, we know it's there in the middle um, of the Bible of the Old Testament. But in, in fact, it's the really Ezra and Nehemiah are the chronologically are the last um, books. Um, they they would go at the end of the time of the Old Testament. Um, and so it's kind of this interesting transition time between what we read in the rest of, of uh, the Old Testament and then there's a gap and then the New Testament, uh, kind of a transition time uh, where, you know, th- religion in Judea, Israelite religion is changing um, and there's some other things going on, rebuilding of temples, etc. And uh, so it's really, I mean, it's an interesting historical aspect of how God uh, sustains his people um, and preserves the promises that will be fulfilled in Jesus that are connected to the land of, of Israel. Um, he does not forsake his people in exile and uh, he keeps his promises. And, and this is part of that story. I just found here that it is in our lectionary. It looks like okay. one time on series <laughs> C, I guess this, this shows that I didn't preach on this in January, um, but <laughs> third Sunday after the epiphany, Nehemiah chapter eight. So we'll have to highlight that when we get to Nehemiah chapter yeah. eight, but definitely not a prominent book. Well, the old Testament is pretty big. So 
like you said, it's 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 a it's a story of God's providence that He keeps His promises. And what's interesting is when you get to this point, like you said, chronologically, it's towards the end. It's definitely not right at the end when you look at the book, the Bible, and how it's laid out. But you have these three books: Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And there's a lot of similarities. And you mentioned something about seeing some of those similarities. What do you have to share there? Yeah, um, you know, just looking, just you know, spending some time trying to trace down some of the the language and the way that it's uh, some of the words that are used, and just the, especially I noticed with Esther, and and I think anybody who's familiar with Esther would kind of see this that the that the way that Nehemiah deals with the king is actually very similar to the way that Esther does mm-hmm. uh, deals with the king. Uh, and they both have requests. They both it both involves uh, both books involve feasting with the king and questions about whether the king is going to listen to the request. Um, also, the the idea that you have to wait for the king to to speak to you before you can talk to the king. You can't just go in there and ask for anything. Um, Esther is is emboldened to ask, and uh, here in Nehemiah two. Uh, the king asks Nehemiah uh, to to request what he wants to to mm. ask for, um, and uh, you know there's opposition. Um, there there's kind of a and same thing with Ezra. There are to the opposition of re- rebuilding part of the temple. There are these these people in the area who don't want this to happen, and then the same thing in Nehemiah when he goes back to the city to try and rebuild the walls, uh, there are people there who are opposed to him. Esther, you know, Haman, uh, the, uh, the opponent, uh, who wants to destroy all of the Judeans there. Um, and Mordecai who encourages Esther to, to resist that. So, so there are some similarities just in the way that the the language and also the, the themes of dealing with the, these Kings who, who are not uh, from Judea, not Israelite. They're in, they're in places where they're not in their own land. Uh, And so, you know, Daniel probably has some similar things too, um, Mm -hmm. in terms of the way that God blesses these people in foreign lands away from their homes away from Jerusalem, away from the temple, away from the, the, the land of promise. Um, so those are just some of the things I noticed. Yeah. Those are, those are great connections as far as the relationship with the King where people are located, not in their homeland. And that even changed because we just finished studying second Kings. And when you see that transition, you see Jerusalem has fallen. Um, they are taken away to Babylonian captivity and now you have just some unique dynamics that it's no longer the you know it's no longer uh, Nebuchadnezzar it's a uh, the Persian king Cyrus had taken over today we see King Artaxerxes and there's a different way of relating that clearly King Artaxerxes' goal is not to keep them in captivity but uh, Pastor Meyer talked about they like taxes they like money so they kind of let him go back home and just you know tax them to death was kind of how he described it. So you have a lot of moving parts over this 100-year time period. And if I'm right, I, I always have to look at a, a map or a, um, a chart for something like this. But 586 is when the temple falls, when they leave Jerusalem. 
Um, 539 is the rise of Cyrus, where they had the Persians came in. They, they built the temple, but yet they didn't build the wall, right? They didn't build a wall around. All this time, you have Daniel, you have Ezekiel. Uh, from this time, Haggai, Zechariah, Esther, Ezra, all these books are are, are are happening, these prophets and everything. And now we're at about 445 BC. So what is this? 140 years since they left Jerusalem. Now they're going back to build the wall. So there's there's a lot that happened in those 100 plus years, 140 years, but also 140 years is a long time. So um, it's fascinating history and hard to put it all together, but thank you for your, for your highlights. Any other, any other thoughts before we dig into the text? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an, it, the whole, the whole exile and return is, is, it's not just like this one event and that one event yeah. there's is a spread out period of time. So spread out from when the Babylonians first come to the, exile to the destruction of Jerusalem uh, and the burning of the temple. And then uh, going back, you have people go back initially. Cyrus is the one prophesied who, who whom God chooses to, to send the people back. But then there's more time until they kind of, till things, so it's kind of an spread out. Um, and so it, it is kind of hard to get, keep a handle on all of this stuff happening uh, over this period of time, but, um, yeah. Well, it's interesting because you, you envision it would be like the Israelites when they left Egypt, that they all were kind of huddled together and they, you know, they, <laughs> and they all go across the Jordan at the same time. And only one yeah. left is, yeah. you know, Moses on the mountain and they go in, well, that's not at all like this. And we learn in parts of the Bible, you have the dispersion where people just, they didn't just go back home. And so it really is a, a, a grieving time because the people are separated. They're all over the place and they're trying to restore anything that they can. And that is symbolized today in the wall, which can, which we'll be able to dig in more today. So any other last thoughts before we dig in? No, let's go ahead. All right, let's do this boss. Uh, let's open up our Bibles uh, and let's go reminder to our listeners. We'll be reading from the English standard by uh, version of Holy scripture, Nehemiah chapter two, reading the first two verses in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the King. Now I had not been sad. I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. So I wanted to stop there. First of all, there's a little bit of context because the verse before our time, it says that Nehemiah is a cupbearer. Did you find anything on what a cupbearer is? Well, apparently the the not only the person who brings the wine to the king, but make sure that nothing bad is in the cup. Um, and so it's a, you have to be somebody who is trusted uh, by the king. You're not just going to, you're not just going to let anybody ha- bring your cup of wine to you because if somebody wants to kill the king and they want to poison him, that, that we're, we're, they're going to put it in the wine. So you, it's got to be some, so this, I think it shows first of all that, that, uh, that Nehemiah is a trusted uh, person to Artaxerxes um, and, uh, that, uh, he's, he trusts him to be in his presence and to, that he's not going to harm him in any way. So, 
um, it seems to, so Nehemiah is a trusted person like, like Daniel, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, they, he, he earns the trust of the, the person for whom he is in, to whom he's subject, even though they're not, that's not where Daniel or Nehemiah or Ezra, it's not where they want to be. Uh, Ezekiel, um, they don't want to be in, in this place. They want to be in their own land, but, but there's an interesting, uh, service going on to these pagan Kings. Uh, and, uh, he had not been sad in his presence. In other words, you know, he's not just moping around waiting for the time he can go back to Jerusalem. Uh, he's serving with, you know, zeal and, and, and joy in the place where he is. And I, I really think that's an interesting aspect to this and something that, that might seem strange to, to us, you know, this many generations later in the, in the Western world that, uh, these, these believers in God and trusting in God's promises, they serve gladly in these places where, you know, or we, we would be like, well, that's not a believer. Why would we serve happily there? Um, but they do. And this is a theme that I think is important for us as we go through Nehemiah is the faithfulness of Nehemiah, because when he finds out about the wall not being built, it's clear that he's not a happy, happy camper, I guess you would say it, is it, he's not excited about this. Um, and so he grieves and he fasts. This is Nehemiah 1 verse 4. He, he fasts and he prays and mourns for days. So it's not like he's just a happy guy all the time, what we perceive to be one of those individuals that just seems always so joyful. But he was serving peacefully and faithfully, probably because of his faith. Yet he trusted that God would take care of him, that God would lead and guide him. And that's true because he, he first thing that we see him do is pray um, in our text in chapter 1. And here, this is a, a, a great insight you gave us, Pastor, is that um, he was serving in a place that we would not probably didn't have the greatest uh, health benefits, didn't have the greatest surroundings, didn't have the protections of a union or something. And yet he was doing so with faithfully. And each day he drank a cup of wine before the, probably before the king took it. And he could have been, well, he, got, he could have died. I mean, who knows who's poisoning these things, right? He's the first guy on that line of attack. So I th- there's a, there's a definite manifestation of faith, I think is what you're, what you're telling us there. Yeah. And I think, um, I think this comes in part from uh, what Jeremiah wrote to the exiles um, in, uh, in, in Jeremiah 29, when, when he tells, I mean, again, this seems, I think this seems foreign to American Christians. At least it does to me in a sense that, that, uh, well, you know, why would I, why do I care what the pagans are doing or, you know, what, why do I care what happens to them? But in, in Jeremiah 29, uh, God uh, tells Jeremiah to tell the exiles uh, to build houses and live in them, to plant gardens and eat their produce, to take wives and so- have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. I mean, there's another generation that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. And then verse seven, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare and so to, but all of this is in the context of simply trusting that God will keep his promise and return them to the land in his own good time. So 
they're in exile and they're longing for their own land, but they have to wait for God to do it. And while they're waiting for God to do it, they're supposed to live their lives in the place where they are. And I think this has a lot to say to us, you know, Mm. um, you know, whatever our circumstances and whatever nation in which we find ourselves as Christians, uh, we, we live the lives that we have been given in the place and serve our neighbor and pray for the people around us uh, and wait for God to keep his promise. And he will. Wow. That is great. A reminder to our listeners, that's from Jeremiah 29. As he writes to the exiles, uh, Jeremiah writes a letter to them. Build houses, take wives, give your daughters in marriage, bear sons, but seek the welfare of the city, for I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. This reminds us of we need to pray for more people, I think, on our prayer list. It's not just for Christian people. Clearly, we pray for our government leaders but pray for your city. Like I need to pray for uh, Sartell, uh, Pastor, you pray for East Monachi um, and other cities. Where you are, pray for the city, pray for the people, and um, God has placed you there. This is kind of a calling text in many ways. This is where God has called you, even though you don't fully understand. Wow, that's a great insight. Other other thoughts in these two verses, Pastor? Um, you know, the, the, the word for sadness here is like bad or evil. And, and, you know, mo- all, I think all translations recognize it's bad in the sense of like sorrow rather than evil, but there, he is afraid. And I wonder if there's something there about, he's wondering what's behind the King's question. You know, is this, is he trying to seek out some kind of conspiracy that Nehemiah is involved in? And that's why he's looking sorrowful or downcast because uh, he hasn't looked like this before, um, he for some reason it uh, causes him to be afraid. But uh, he just he he f- uh, goes forward like Esther in boldness to ask what he's going to ask. And that's interesting too when you think of the compassion of the king. Artaxerxes clearly trusted this guy not only by his job but also even noticing if he was sad or had a different demeanor. And then even with that trust. That there was always a certain amount of fear. So yes, they were, you know, they were, they were serving faithfully. They were doing all this, but yet they were always a little bit on edge too, which I think is probably relatable to us as well. There's always a little bit of an edge in certain situations. So um, it's it's an interesting how he captures this, how the writer captures this is very very personal, and I think very much so relates to us and how we see the world as well. Any last thoughts? No, that's probably good. Though. Okay. Keep moving. Three and four. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, so first of all, he addresses the king with respect. But I was thinking about this, and I want to hear what your thoughts on these verses are. It's much like when I think of uh, like where my grand, great-grandparents are buried, which is southern Minnesota. And um, you go down there, and it's a shadow of what it once was as far as the number of people. It used to be just full of kids at the school. The school's empty. It's not being used anymore. And you look around, and you see the graves of, of the, the ones who came before us, most of them 
very faithful Christian people and the lack of people compared to what they once had. Now, it's a beautiful area, don't get me wrong, but there's a certain amount of grief knowing that this place was once a thriving community that now basically has turned into a bunch of farmland and the churches are all struggling in that area. And that's the kind of grief I was thinking about when I was when I was hearing these words that he's grieving because he mentions his father's grave. He doesn't mention, you know, where my family was and we used to hang out by the river and all this kind of stuff. I mean, there was a, there was a legacy here that went beyond just it was a nice place to be. Um, so what are your thoughts on his grief that he speaks about here? Yeah, I, um, I read I read something that uh, suggested that perhaps Nehemiah um, it comes from um, a significant or a prominent family in Jerusalem, uh, and that that's why he can he's it's connected so closely to the city, um, you know, in terms of the graves, etc. Um, and but uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's a there's a connection, and and I don't know um, how long Nehemiah. Let's see, does he say how long he's been there? Um, hmm. That's a good question. I don't know. You know, if he came at the beginning, I don't know how old he is, um, but you know, he has this this. It's a longing, and, and it's a longing not only for his home, but it's a longing for the land where God has put them. There's much more. It's much. It's it's both what you said, I think, and more in terms of they're cut off in some sense. I mean, Lamentations is all about this. They're they're cut off in some sense from God's mercy, or from God, or from the way from God being near to them because they don't have the temple and they don't have they're not in the place where God put them. So there's a there's a there's a both a a you know kind of an an emotional family connection, but there's also the spiritual grief of not being in the place where God had promised to put them. That that increases, I think the the um the the i don't know what word the, the increases the angst. the burden the yeah, the, <laughs> yeah yeah burden. yeah good, good. Yeah. yeah and you can feel it almost from his from his heart from the depths of his soul the what do you call it the the the, the just, I mean, you can just feel it that you, you want to be there. And that's a great point. It's not just, like I said, Oh, my great grandfather grew up there. or My dad grew up there. Therefore I have a connection. It's that's where God wanted us to be. And we failed and now it's in rubbles and, and I can't go back there. I haven't been able to go back there. And so there's definitely a, a calling. There's a God's mercy and, and grace that they are not able to have because they're literally not there. Um, and so one of the unique things, and then we have to get to our break, is that he gets to that point and he says, the king's like, so what are you asking for? And then it goes back. And this is the faithfulness of Nehemiah. So I prayed to the God of heaven. I want to touch on that a little bit after our break and just the importance of the daily prayers that we have and the prayers before we move forward or people ask us or the maybe quick prayers that we have in our lives. But right now we need to take our break. We are studying Nehemiah chapter two with Pastor Tim Winterstein, and we'll be right back. What's happening in Germany's Lutheran churches where Iranian refugees are flooding through the doors? What new opportunities for sharing the Christian faith are arising in communist Vietnam? And how can my church play a part? 
Mission speakers, all LCMS pastors from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, will come to your church free of charge to preach and lead Bible studies tying into this exciting work going on all around the world. To schedule your speaker, call LHF at 800-554-0723. And welcome back. We are studying Nehemiah chapter 2 with Pastor Tim Winterstein. And Pastor, I was reading a Bible study on Nehemiah, and one pastor described this prayer that he gave um, when the, the king is like, so what do you want? And he prayed to the God of heaven, and he called it an arrow prayer, an arrow, like shooting a bow and arrow, kind of, a, um, and he described it as like a, a quick uh, prayer that you just throw out there real quick while you're in the middle of what I would say your vocations, you're making decisions. And I don't know, any thoughts on those kind of prayers and the importance for us as Christians to do that? I mean, Paul says, pray continually, uh, pray at all times. And so I think, you know, there's a, there's a sense in which Christians are always by the Holy Spirit, uh, in a, in communication or communion with, with our father through Jesus Christ. So, so daily, you know, uh, it, I, it's, it's definitely good and beneficial. And, uh, and I think, necessary even to spend specific time uh, set aside for hearing the word of God and praying that word back to him. But at the same time, that's not going to be our whole day. And so, you know, we're not, we're not monks kind of isolated and, and devoted only to prayer. Uh, we have our daily vocations and Nehemiah does. And so, he is. He prays this prayer kind of in the middle of it, like you said, in the middle of his duties, in the middle of 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 his work. He just kind of, like you said, shoots it out there. Um, and there, there's, you know, we're not given the content, but clearly it involves both a a that that he he would receive a beneficial result from the king, and I suspect that he would say the right things, you know, and that that would be um, that that would. He would, he would speak in the right way to the king. And it definitely, we see a good example of that in chapter one, that when he does pray and we see what he prays, it is a faithful prayer that he is definitely, you know, uh, Martin Luther, you know, talks about the acts. We highlighted this yesterday with, with Pastor Meyer, just the, um, the acts prayer that, that Martin Luther speaks about. Um, now I'm not, I'm shooting from the hip right now. It's acts, uh, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. So he definitely is a faithful prayer, but let's be honest, we don't, sometimes you don't have time to pray all those things. So he gives this uh, little prayer and shows that he is definitely looking to the Lord for guidance. Pastor, any other thoughts on, on the first four verses so far? Yeah, no, that's uh, very he, good. He, yep. Oh, good. Did you have more? <laughs> all right. Keep going. All right. We're going to do this. Verses five through eight, verses five through eight. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. 
and a letter to Asaph and the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So, Pastor, I'm going to start with what 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 did you see as highlights in these verses? Um, you know, it's interesting that they that uh, so when he asks this, and you know, he he uses kind of these formal uh, phrases that seem that appear again. Uh, uh, Daniel, the three young men. I mean, even the you know the three young men. Um, we know them by their you know Babylonian names, but they they. Um, they say this to the king, even when he's commanding them to bow down and worship at the statue. Uh, mm. Oh, king, oh, king, live forever. We're, we're not bowing down to you. <laughs> you know, there's a it's it's a this kind of formal respect for the office of the king, even though he's not a believer. And they're you know, it's not in terms of, uh, the, in fact, an idolater. Um, so he he does that. And then the king is, you know. Uh, d- disposed toward him in a, in a good way, and and there's a just weird in in the English at least it's in parentheses the the queen sitting beside him, which uh, you know reading behind that makes you wonder if if the the queen has something to do with you know the good disposition toward uh, you know from a human perspective because we find out in verse eight that this is clearly the work of God, but from a human perspective. Uh, does the does the queen have something to say about mm. Nehemiah and his and and makes you know how much is is that involved and why because otherwise why put that in there but um, that's one thought and then um, it's a long way to uh, to Judah and so he needs he needs letters for other parts of the empire to so that you know they're not like well yeah right you're not. The king didn't really say this, so he needs he needs letters so that he can pass through the other provinces of and areas. I, I think I read it's something like a thousand miles, maybe, uh, uh, that he had to go. Um, that, that I may have misread that, but I think I said I think I saw that it was from the from Susa uh, to uh, um, to the river and then from the river to Judah, it would have been something like a thousand miles. So he's got a long way to go. And in between he needs, he needs proof that he is actually, that he has the authority and the permission of the King. Um, and then the, uh, the other thing that stuck out to me is the, the keeper of the King's forest. So he needs, he needs uh, timber to rebuild these things. But the word that's used there is this, uh, I think it's a, comes from a Persian word for, for parrot, we, we just translate it as paradise. And it's this, it's the same word as the garden that God puts in, um, in Eden and this kind of enclosed space. Uh, sometimes it's a park, sometimes it's a garden. Sometimes here it clearly means it's more than just that because there are trees that he's going to have to cut down to get for, for timber. But, uh, that, that word paradise, uh, it's a nice, a nice place, a nice garden, a nice park. Um, and, uh, and then finally the, just the, that, that it's God who's doing running it all. The King maybe thinks he's doing one thing. Other people think they're doing things, but God's finally running it, the, the whole thing. And, and, uh, the good hand 
of my God was upon me, which appears a couple times in Ezra and then later in, in uh, uh, chapter eight here, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Or verse, no, no, not chapter eight. In verse 22, I think, is it in this chapter? No, let's see. I got it wrong. There's another place where, where it shows up here. In, gotcha. in it verse 22 in chapter two. I did yes, look this so. up. It's 848 miles okay. um, from from there to, well, you know, who knows the exact route he took, but it would, it would have taken a long time. I mean, you think about driving 800 miles and you got a, you get a couple yeah. days on your hands. So um, definitely a long ways to go. What's the influence on the queen here? Who knows? But it definitely is interesting. They added that, especially um, when you just realize how the real world works. And that's why I appreciate how he's, speaking here is that he shows what's happening in the world and the king's like well how long are you gonna be gone it doesn't tell us how long he's gonna be gone does he even go back i don't know if we have that at least i don't i don't know offhand if he does go back but it, it does show that 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 there's this this is a real world conversation that's happening because if your cupbearer leaves you want him back you, you want to make sure that wine is not poisoned and you trust this guy and obviously the queen trusts him and he goes and he has to get supplies. So he's thinking about supplies. And this is very worldly, earthly stuff that we have to think about. But yet in the midst of it, not only does he pray, but in the end of this, he admits that all of it was the hand of God upon me. And I think that's an important thing for us to be able to proclaim in our lives. Because then, well, I know for me at least, if I keep talking about what I did, or I see through through the lens of what we did, the first person I'm going to forget about is God, who, like you said, is over it all. Any other thoughts on, on that? Or are you looking up other, the other verse that you are, were looking for? Uh, it might be in Ezra, but, uh, <laughs> I know, I know there, I know two play in chapter seven and chapter eight in Ezra, that it's a similar phrase, but I, I didn't find the particular one I was looking for in, in Nehemiah, but, but you know, the, the Psalm says, right. Unless the Lord, uh, builds the house the laborers labor in vain so you know nehemiah knows that and he holds to that the entire time he he never uh sort of assumes that he's the one who's who's doing it and and uh and this goes along with the pro the promise of god to the people you got to wait until i do my work and sometimes we we get impatient you know abraham gets impatient with god and keeping his promise and and throughout the Old Testament, people get impatient and they don't, uh, mm. not only the Old Testament, of course, but uh, we get impatient with when is this going to happen? And, you know, then we just have the reassurance. Don't, just do the work that I've given you to do here and now, and I'll take care of the, I'll take care of the rest and uh, I'll take care of all of it. Uh, so it's a, it's a good, and Nehemiah so is a good, is a good uh, example there of faith for us in terms of his care going about his life. Well, that's why this, the psalmist says, wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. I think that that's probably one of the more challenging parts yeah. of the Bible. I mean, to be honest, of, of Christian faith too, is to wait because I want the results now. And it's kind of nice. Like we sometimes blame it on 21st century America. We don't like to wait, but I don't think we've, ever been good at waiting when you look at the the history of scripture if you know anything about history of the world we've just never been good at waiting so that that could be a whole nother conversation but um he's a man of faith and he's given god all the glory as he does this so pastor anything else in those first eight verses 
I don't think so. Go ahead. All right. Let's keep moving forward. So he he wants to do this. He's going to be on his way. Um, and now there's a reaction. The reaction. Verses 9 and 10. Then I came to the governors and the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sam Ballot and the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So he arrives, he has all the papers, he has his passport, if you will, um, but yet he receives resistance. Now, I find this fascinating. We're going to talk more about it later. But any thoughts on, on the resistance and why these guys would not be for the rebuilding of the wall? Yeah, it's almost like uh, they've sort of completely bought into that this is now, you know, uh, belongs to a foreign power. Tobiah, at least the way it, it's we have it, is a is probably a Hebrew name. Um, mm-hmm. And so it calls him the Ammonite servant. And so he, he apparently, at some point at least, had, be, had um, become a servant to the Ammonite. And Ammonites and, uh, you know, Midianites and, and the people here, they are, they're not friendly to, to Israelites. And <laughs> Israelites aren't really friendly to them either. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's kind of this ongoing animosity between uh, these different people. But, you know, there's always resistance to the work of God in some way or another, whether it's, you know, from, from purely from human motives or the devil is going to oppose uh, the work of what God is doing, you know, one way or another, there's opposition sometimes from our own sinful flesh. But um, so that's happening here. Yeah. And we don't, like, like you said, you don't know a lot about it. Like you said, there was a, a connection there somehow of, of, uh, of a Hebrew nature. Uh, Sambalat obviously probably was not that, but they, it greatly displeased them. So we know that whenever we're going to do the Lord's work, uh, there's going to be people who are going to be antagonistic towards it. We don't want to make a one-to-one that every time someone disagrees with you in church, that therefore they're Sambalot and they're Tobiah. You know, that's a dangerous move to make. Um, you have no but, part here. <laughs> so it's important for us to remember that as well. But it is something to know that when it isn't explicit, like we do not want the word of God to go out then that is very similar to what they're dealing with here is no, we don't want that in this place. And so that's a, it's a good reminder that that's nothing new either, that when we experience maybe not what we consider persecution, but someone literally not wanting the word of God to go out, that that's what's happening here as well. Um, okay. So you ready to move on? Sure. All right. 11 through 16. So I went to Jerusalem and there was three for, was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one that what my God had put into my heart to do in, for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then went out to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up the night in the valley of the inspe- and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, 
and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were who were to do the work. So we have a very simple reality. He's going to inspect the grounds. I mean, it's just like when someone's going to do a construction project, they want to go and check out the lay of the land before they give a uh, quote of how much this is going to cost, which is always joyful for those who are receiving the quote. But um, he's doing an inspection, if you will. And one of the struggles I had, and I'd be intrigued because the more I read, the more frustrated I got is, and this is going to be true tomorrow or the next, uh, when we do Nehemiah 3, is there's so many gates and details. The more I read about where these gates might have been, the more I realized they don't really know where these gates were and not necessarily the significance. Maybe you were able to piece that together better. Any any insights on the gates, the meaning, where they were, anything like that? I I they apparently know where some of the I, I don't have a sense of, you know, the actual city layout to to know exactly. Some it seems to me though, from what I was reading that that some of the places they think they know some of the places they have no idea. Um, and there's, right. there was a weird, a weird little detail about this dragon spring thing that, that maybe they were keeping like some kind of crocodile or, or, uh, some kind of other, you know, yeah. large dragon like, uh, creature in this pool. Um, so I don't, I don't know that I, I found that interesting without knowing anything else more about it. But uh, apparently, again, from people who know more than I do about the actual layout of things, apparently he, the the idea is probably that he went around much of the city. There was this particular place where he can't actually, uh, he has to go down into the Kidron Valley, uh, which shows up again in John's gospel where Jesus crosses to go to the Mount of Olives. But um, that he had to go down in the valley and back up because there's too much rubble or too much destruction of the part of the wall. He can't just go the way that he's been going. And, and apparently, according to, again, you know, at least one person, he, he didn't maybe go all the way around the city, but he went kind of halfway around and then went back. Um, whether that's the case or not, he, he is doing this inspection and he doesn't tell anybody because he doesn't want there's, there's going to be opposition and there already has been, but he, he kind of does it at night so that he does in, not in the middle of the day, not where everybody can see him and not where these enemies of the, who are opposing the work, uh, where we'll be able to do it. Obviously he, he's kind of getting the lay of the land first before he actually starts. Now this, this is something I know we're going to cover tomorrow. By the way, pray, pray for me tomorrow. Pastor uh, Ned Murphy is going to be on chapter three is going to be challenging. So pray for us. Uh, Pastor Murphy is a very, uh, a very thorough and great theologian. It's going to be a battle for me, first of all, to memorize, not memorize, be able to pronounce most of them, but also because it's all about the gates and rebuilding the wall. And I, I like how you highlighted that this wall, he, he didn't went all the way around in the commentary uh, by Dr. Simon, Concordia Commentary on Ezra and Nehemiah, page 416. Um, it definitely shows the Sheep Gate, which is, um, well, the north, and the Dung Gate would have been on the south, and the Valley Gate was basically in the middle. So he would have done his best to get to almost every part to try to get a lay of the land and to see what he needs to do, which shows that he not only was a faithful man, but he was a very thorough man in the vocations that God gave to him as well. So it, it's a challenging thing. We don't have this gate up nowadays. Uh, we don't see it. 
Um, but we do, <laughs> we do know that it was there and it's very detailed, which shows us that God is a God of order. So, um, so we hear those words, he's inspecting the gate. Any other thoughts? Nope. That he just doesn't, right. he doesn't tell anybody cause he's gonna, he's gonna figure it out first, what needs to be done. And then when it actually starts, then people are going to oppose it. So he, he's, he's, uh, putting off the opposition for a little bit. Yeah, right, exactly. All right. So he's waiting until they have the council meeting. No, no, the, the yearly <laughs> congregational meeting when he's going to reveal the vision, the vision for, the, for God's people. Right. 17 right. through 20. Right. Let's keep going till the end. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Samballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right to claim or claim in Jerusalem. So he gathers what we perceive to be the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. So these are probably a significant amount of people. He gathers them together, and what does he tell them? This is, don't you see? how everything is uh we can't we can't uh, this isn't acceptable that the the city and the house of god although you know Ezra had uh prior to this had rebuilt at least part of the temple so so it's the mainly the walls and uh um and here here's maybe the place i was thinking of the the good the hand of my god had been upon me for good which is kind of a a ra- more roundabout way of saying the same thing about the good hand of god had been upon him um, and so he's saying, look, this is the, God's given us this work. We have this from the King. Uh, it is, and, and let's, let's do this because the city's city, this is the place God's put us. And so, um, he's, uh, and they agree. Apparently they vote to give him the money to, to, uh, to do it. It was a unanimous vote um, if you just took God's people. But then you have the three the three naysayers of those who refused to vote or to express their opinions, even though they might not have been members of the congregation. Who knows? Um, but anyway, so I, I got, I'm going too far with the congregational connection. Um, so he definitely is using God language. They say, let's rise up and build. And we find out tomorrow that they do rise up and build. I mean, and this was not a small amount of people. I mean, there's 41 different groups that we highlight in chapter three um, that were building specific places. And and so it's a significant amount of people that actually get this work done, um, which is an amazing act of faith. I, I think it's just a good reminder for us as Christian people is what does God call us to do as a community? We, we, we speak a lot, and was, as we do, because the Bible does, of how we gather around the Lord's gifts and receive those gifts. And there are times that the Lord calls us to join together as the body of Christ to do what needs to be done. I like how you said it there, that we have we have the timber, we have the people, we have, we have the temple. Um, this is what God's calling us to do. Let's go. And I think that's a, a true testament to when 
we're able to see that in our own lives as well. What, what are your thoughts on that? It's, it's an interesting thing because the, the temptation is very, very strong uh, to, say, to, to make a one-to-one correspondence between the sorts of things that Nehemiah does or Ezra and then, you know, what we do um, and Jeremiah as well. Uh, and, you know, so I think, I think the connection is not so much, well, God has called us and we are just going to do this thing because we believe God has called us. That's not what, that's not really what Nehemiah is doing. In other words, he's not saying, well, I want to do this. Let's see if God, you know, wants me to do this. Oh, I think God wants me to do it. So let's go ahead and do it. There, there's a specific thing with the city of Jerusalem and the temple that is already based on God's word. And so I think if we're, if we're going to draw a connection, it's got to be based on something that, that is already in God's word and not be like, well, I, it's, I think it's good uh, that we build a new addition or build a new sanctuary or what, whatever it is that, you know, so, well, God's going to, this is what God's called us to do. Well, there, we don't have a direct word. There's no scripture that says, okay, you in this place, go build a, another church. And so it, ha- it would have to be based, I think, instead on, you know, what's going to allow us to best do our work in this place? You know, what's going to allow the word of God to, to be, to continue to go out? What's going to benefit that work? Cause that's what we have a word of God about. You can, you can have the scriptures, the, the word of God preached, the sacraments given out in any place. You don't need a building for that. Um, and so it's not so much about a, a building as it is about what's going to best allow us to do the work that God has given us to do. Nehemiah already has that because of the city of Jerusalem, and that's the place where God is bringing them back to and where he promised to bring them back to. So they already have that. So he's not just making this up and like looking for a spiritual uh, you know, excuse to do it. They already have the promise, and he's simply carrying it out. And so I think it's it's just always a danger to sort of take that as a immediately to ourselves and uh, do things that may or that we don't have a word of God about. And that's, we don't necessarily have to have a word of God about everything, but it's got to be based on what we've been called to do. Absolutely. And so he receives uh, uh, some pushback. We have about three minutes left here, pastor and the pushback from, um, from the same guys, actually you add Geshem, the Arab, they heard of this, they jeered, they're upset. Are you rebelling against the king? I love his response. What was his response and why is that important for us? Sorry, I was in uh, Esther looking at one other thing, but. Oh, you're excited. Um, you're excited with Esther. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, he, he says, uh, because he had, because he knows that they're in the place where God promised to bring him back. Uh, God's doing this and it's, it's going to be God's work. We're going to build, uh, we're going to do this, you know, this kind of this, the physical work, but really it's up to God and, uh, you don't, you can't stop God. You can't stop God from doing what he has promised to do. You can oppose us all you want, but you're, you don't have a part of this. Um, which is a, he's like, you, you, you can, in, in the opposition to us, you're opposing God. And, uh, you know, it's similar to the opposition in, in Esther, which is what I was looking at, is that there's wow. a, almost almost word for word, uh, when Mordecai refuses to bow down before the king, uh, they say, why do you transgress the king's command to Mordecai? Um, 
and but this is the thing when it's a when it's opposed to God, you you we must obey God rather than men, uh, and uh, so uh, God's work, not not Nehemiah's that he made up himself, and uh, if you're opposed to that, you're opposed to God, and that's you know that's also a temptation for us, right? If you're opposed to me, you're opposed to God. But when it's God's word, then it doesn't matter who the speaker is. You're opposed to the the speaking of God's word, then you're opposed to God. And Jesus himself says that when he sends out the his disciples to prepare the way for him. So, so Pastor, we have about 30 seconds here. How would you summarize this chapter? Um, you know, it's it's a tr- simple trust of Nehemiah in the middle of his carrying out of his work uh, that this should happen. It's God's God's promise that it's going to happen, uh, and he has the he's in the position to do it. And by his vocation, serving before the king, you know, not every person who's still in Babylon or uh, still in under the this empire is in the position to do that. And I think that tells us, you know, we we all have different vocations, and Nehemiah is a faithful layman in the, in modern sense. Ezra is more of a priest. And I, th- I think that's an interesting thing. You've got Ezra and Nehemiah in two different positions, both working in the same uh, area for the same goal and purpose. Um, but they're, they're carrying out their vocations faithfully for the sake of other people. And uh, Nehemiah is in a position to ask for it because of his vocation. Pastor Tim Winterstein of Faith Lutheran Church in East Wenatchee, Washington. Pastor Winterstein, thank you again for being our guest. Oh, thanks for having me. Saints of our Lord, the Lord answers, answered Nehemiah's prayer to grant success in the building of the wall. We'll see that tomorrow as we go to Nehemiah chapter 3. Even when questioned if he was going against the king, he kept his eyes on God, the God of heaven, who will make him prosper. May we keep our eyes on him, no matter what our vocation is, knowing that he is the author and perfecter of our faith, and he makes us wise for salvation. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hands.